0: Welcome to the NeuroDiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was in a neurodiverse neurodiverse relationship for 32 years and didn't know it until our 29th year of marriage. And I am here today with a wonderful guest who I've had the opportunity to talk to several times. And her name is Kim Bolling, and I am going to let Kim share a little bit about the work she does with neurodiverse couples and uh, a little bit about who she is. So, Kim, welcome. I'm really glad you're here tonight.
1: Thanks, Mona. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Um,
1: I am a psychologist. I have a private practice online and in Southern New Hampshire, and I'm a couples therapist And I'm also an assistant trainer for the IFS Institute. IFS stands for Internal Family Systems, and that's the primary modality that I work in. And I also have a certification in neurodiverse couples counseling from AANE, the uh, Asperger Autism Network of New England.
0: That's wonderful. It's, It's so wonderful that we have this opportunity to talk to counselors and coaches that work with neurodiverse couples because... Six years ago, when my ex and I separated, and then in 2017, when we found out we were neurodiverse, it was so difficult to find somebody that could provide couples counseling for us in the state that we lived in and the only option we really had was to do coaching Mm. online now that's the norm because of the pandemic but back then it wasn't something that was the norm so it's really wonderful to know there are more counselors who are becoming educated about how to effectively work with neurodiverse couples so thank you thank you for that so tell me a little bit about how you got started As a counselor, and specifically, what made you want to work with neurodiverse couples? Yeah,
1: so um, I actually started my adult life as a software engineer. Um, I did that for about ten years until I had my husband and I had our kids, and then I um, stayed home with them for a while. And then when they both got to be school aged, I really didn't want to go back to software. It didn't, you know, having kids really changed me. It made me really want to work with people more. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that's when I went back to grad school and and started working in psychology. Um, and I was just always really drawn to couples therapy. I think probably, you know, some of my early life experiences and trying to, you know, be a mediator in my family of origin and things like that. And a middle child, you know, the usual stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And so, um, after grad school, then I, um, Discovered IFS, and that also lended, lends itself really well to couples therapy, um, and uh, so I really went went that route. I also have a family member who is on the spectrum, and so I've always been interested in connecting with that family member and really understanding and just being close. And so, you know, that definitely motivated me. I think also working as a software engineer for so long, I I just encountered a lot of people that were probably on the spectrum, you know, even before I knew what it was.
0: So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I feel like I'm a good person to, be in this area, because I sort of have, you know, half engineering brain, half psychologist brain.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. And and to be able to both understand the neurotypical and the neurodivergent person, because it, it almost sounds like, you know, you're a little bit of both. I think that's fantastic.
1: That's yeah. really good.
0: Yeah. So So can you tell me a little bit about what you think some of the biggest communication challenges are that you've seen when you've worked with neurodiverse couples and maybe how you've handled that. And if you wouldn't mind kind of talking about some of the um, main components of IFS, because I don't think we've had anybody on the podcast that's uh, been very um, entrenched in that modality. And it's just absolutely wonderful. So communication challenges that you've experienced with neurodiverse couples and kind of IFS and how's that, how has that helped guide you?
1: Okay, yeah. Um, would it be okay if I maybe spoke to the IFS a little bit first, just to give a little context?
0: Please, yes.
1: So um, IFS stands for internal family systems and it evolved, um, Dick Schwartz developed the model and it, it's basically a systems approach to working with individuals or small systems like couples. So rather than, you know, thinking of our brains as monolithic, IFS recognizes that we have different aspects of our personalities, and sometimes they fight with each other, you know, Mm -hmm. even internally. So, (laughs) you know, I remember, you know, uh, when my kids were little, you know, working, and then, you know, I'd get home from work, and I, you know, part of me would want to do my notes and be a good therapist and another part of me would, you know, think, oh, I should really spend time with my kids, you know, and, sure, and so then, you know, I would do what all good mothers do and sit down and play on my iPad. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, know. so that's an example of my parts kind of, you know, fighting with each other or feeling polarized around something. So IFS really um, works with systems and tries to help people bring those systems into a more harmonious balance. If I have a part that is very extreme a part of myself a part of my personality let's say that I have road rage um, you know the intention of that part is probably really good it's probably by the way I don't have road rage I like to say that <laughs> but uh, that's it's just a clear example um, that if you know it's coming probably motivated by something really good like wanting to be safe wanting other other drivers to be safe wanting things to be fair. But mm-hmm. it gets so extreme that it actually causes more problems and makes things more dangerous rather than safer. So in IFS, we try to work with systems and bring those parts back into more of a balance with each other um, so that, you know, the person is kind of living the way they want to rather than, um, you know, kind of being hijacked by parts at times or having the polarizations like the one that I explained before, you know, n- you know, make them find a way out of it or something like that. That's not helpful. Sure. So um, within that, um, to answer your question about the communication differences, the main thing that I see, or the, maybe the two main things that stand out for me, um, one of them is like level of indirection. Mm. In, in my experience, um, folks on the spectrum tend to be very straightforward, very sincere, very honest, very direct, very, you know, non ambiguous. And I think that neurotypical people vary a lot in the level of indirection that they use. And, you know, some of these are just, you know, what would be considered common, you know, or at least neurotypically common assumptions. So, you know, if I say to my partner something like, um, hey, are you going to the store? There's an implication in there or an assumption, probably, that my partner and I are making that. I want something from the store. Can right, you something right. from the store? But I'm not actually saying that. I'm what mm-hmm. I'm literally saying is, "Are you going to the store?" Mm-hmm. And so that's a very small example of indirection. But that's the kind of communication difference I see um, a lot of times in neurodiverse couples. That there are there are different levels of indirection of what they're expecting and what they're understanding and what they're looking for. Um, another a more extreme example of that is sarcasm. Um, in sarcasm, we're often saying the exact opposite of what we mean and Mm -hmm. you know you can't get much more indirect than that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right yeah absolutely so so I think that's so interesting I don't think I've ever heard anybody use the word indirection and I really really like that because I think that can make things very confusing Mm -hmm. for the autistic partner um, if I'm understanding this correctly because yeah, if if I ask my ex, are you going to the store? And he says, yes, he might not think that I want him to pick up anything. Right. But as he gets to know me more and more, he might realize that when I say that, because I do say, or I did say it often, he would say, oh, well, do you need me to pick up something? Right. But it comes from practice. Right. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah. And, and being in, in tune with kind of the not straightforward communication that we neurotypicals um, have in our daily conversations. It it can be really confusing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in the example, in this
1: example, too, you can see how, you know, with it it comes down also to assumptions, right? What assumptions are we making Mm -hmm. about what the other person's understanding? Um, And so if I have an assumption that my partner knows that I mean, I want them to get something or that I'm hinting at it or implying it, when they go to the store. And I ask that question, are you going to the store? And they give me a yes, no answer, which is attending to my question, right? Right, right. I'm likely to get mad, because I might, I might then, you know, project onto them something like, oh, they're being obnoxious, or they're being difficult, or they're, you know, not wanting to do me a favor, I start to make meaning of that based on sort of my neurotypical assumptions, right, that probably aren't there, but you could easily see people getting into a fight about it.
0: Absolutely. And I think that that is probably a big reason for arguments and misinterpretation and differences that turn into disagreements between uh, neurodiverse couples. And, you know, I'm wondering how using the parts in IFS could help both the neurotypical and the neurodivergent partner turn that around so that maybe they don't take it personal or the neurotypical Make sure that they provide clear directions and enough information so that it doesn't seem vague.
1: Right, right. Thoughts.
0: Thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I love that you're bringing that in, Mona. I really appreciate that. Um, so, you know, for the neurotypical partner. Um, you know, I would say, I would work with them to say, you know, okay, well, what happened for you when your partner gave you a yes, no answer? And then, you know, they're, they've got parts coming up, obviously, in that by getting, you know, by getting the stories that they might be telling themselves, like, um, oh, you know, my partner is, is really doesn't want to do me any favors. Well, that might come from a part of me that expects that people are going to let me down.
0: You know, uh,
1: you know, that might be unconscious, but it's showing up in this way. So it would be, you know, we do kind of what we call a U-turn, which is what's what's causing you to think that, you know, it may or may not be true. We're not saying whether it's true or not. We don't know because we're not reading other people's minds. But nonetheless, you're you're making that meaning out of that. Why is that? What's happening for you? What part is getting activated in you? That's, you know, helping you make that meaning. And as people get more familiar with their parts, it becomes more and more clear to them. Um, And then they can do what we call unblending from the parts, so that they can be more, you know, what we call more self-led, access more of their core self or their regulated, grounded self and come from a place of that in communicating. Um, With a neurodivergent partner, um, you know, probably when that question got asked or, or, you know, the question about are you going to the store or if their partner, you know, had some irritated reaction to their answer, they're going to notice that irritation but they're not necessarily gonna know why. And so helping a neurodivergent partner to sort of unlearn probably some of the messages that they've gotten throughout their life that they don't get it or they're dumb or whatever horrible messages mm-hmm. that they've been indoctrinated into and be able to notice that it's valid that they're not sure what's going on and mm-hmm. be able to articulate that. So something like, so so for them, it might be in that case, helping parts that think, uh-oh, I better not say anything because I'm going to get it wrong or I'm going to make my partner more mad and and setting that aside and helping them to be able to say, you know, I see that you're annoyed, but I'm not sure why. Um, what, you know, what, what, where did we get lost? You know, so it's really on both people to, um, that's how I would help. I would work with both people to recognize what parts of them were coming up in that, even that little simple interaction and help those parts to step back so that they can just have a, you know, a more authentic conversation around it.
0: That is so beautiful and validating. And I it just made me think of something that was a recurring theme in my marriage. And after doing a lot of work myself, I realized that the part of me that was constantly triggered in my marriage was the child and the teenager and the young adult who was living with parents, one who was much more emotional, my mom. And I realized now my dad was on the spectrum. He's passed Mm. away a long time ago. Mm. But my dad would do exactly the things that would trigger me with my ex. Mm. He would, he would say, you know, let's go do this and then not follow through he would make these big decisions and um, not consult anybody else in the family and just expect us to go along. And what I realized is that that child or teenager or young adult was constantly triggered in my marriage every time my ex did those things. Mm-hmm. Is that is that what you would call parts or you would start taking those parts and kind of peeling the onion back or...
1: Yes, exactly. 100%. percent. Okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so what we all do, what people always do is, you know, we're, we, you know, we can't help but do this, we make meaning out of it, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if this happened for you, Mona, but, um, you know, I could see someone in that situation saying something like, well, they don't care enough about me
0: to follow through. Oh, oh, absolutely. I said that all the time. Uh, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that that you know, that definitely that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? Exactly.
0: So if and, and I hear this a lot in the support groups that I run, this is this is so fascinating and I think will be helpful to so many of our listeners. So when you feel that, when, you're, when your spouse, whether you're the, the autistic person or the neurotypical or non-autistic person, when you feel like you're not being validated or you're not being valued in the relationship, or you feel like what you're sharing is not of, of importance, to go back to why you're feeling that way and what that's triggering is, requires you to do some work. Yeah. It re- requires you maybe to also get in touch with some trauma, you know, um, and some deep feelings that might be difficult for both partners. But I'm wondering if the neurodivergent partner who may not who may have alexithymia and mm-hmm. may not even know their own emotions, yet alone be comfortable with their partner's emotions? Mm-hmm. How to unpack that? Because I see so much hurt and so much pain between partners, and it's unintentional. Right, right.
1: Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question you're asking, and um, it's got a lot of, a lot of layers and nuance. So if I don't speak to it, Mona, please ask me again.
0: Sure, sure, sure. <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, um, I the the when when people on the spectrum, when someone on the spectrum has alexithymia, that does make it more challenging to do IFS in particular. And however, um, people really do get better with practice. So you know, if I'm working with someone with an autistic person, and you know, I'm asking them questions about like what does this bring up for you, or how do you feel toward that, or something like that. And, you know, if they're really having trouble, I sort of kind of scaffold it a little bit. So I might say, you know, um, let's say that I was asking um, a, a neurodivergent person, you know, when your partner gets mad at you, you know, what happens for you? And they might say, oh, I'm not sure. And then I might take a guess, you know, I might say something like, well, does it make you mad or does it make you anxious or does it make you, you know, and I start with kind of a broad brush. Mm-hmm. Um, if those more obvious emotions are easier to recognize. Um, but I think by offering some examples of, of things like that, it helps people to kind of hone in on, on what is happening for them a little bit better. So I think the, the best way I can answer that piece of it is I use, I use scaffolding there. Um, I also try to use different, um, different uh, modalities of communicating. So words is one way. um, But it's not the only way I have um, a couple that I'm working with right now. And the partner on the spectrum plays piano, Mm. and says, you know, I express my feelings through music. Mm. So I might say to that person, you know, when you're feeling this way, is there a piece of music that matches it? Or, you know, I
0: love that. I love that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: no, no, that was, that was really the gist of it. And I'm trying to remember, Mona, you said there was another component to your question. Oh, yes, with trauma, it is. It's hard work. It does have people doing work. Um, and, you know, I, I guess as sort of an insight-oriented therapist, I, I can't help but feel that that's a necessary step in having better relationships with others.
0: Yeah, I, I, there's there's so many things that we can talk about tonight, but I really want to hone in on what you just said because I really think this is important. I think there's a lot of folks, and, and I'm not just saying neurodivergent folks, but neurotypical folks who have a lot of trauma. Yeah. They come into the relationship with trauma. The trauma might be very different for both partners. So I've always tried to look... Um, as I found out we were neurodiverse, I have tried to look through the neurodiverse lens. And as I think about if I had found out as an adult, if I had been diagnosed or uh, self-diagnosed or formally diagnosed as autistic, and I had to look back at 30, 40, 50, 60 years of my life mm-hmm. through the neurodiverse lens, you know, being bullied, being misunderstood, being put in special ed classes, all these things, not having, you know, relationships work out, I can't imagine how that would make me feel. And having to deal with that alone is troubling, challenging, difficult trauma, you know, that you, you know, might want to unpack, but then also to be in a relationship with somebody you love, who's not understanding you. Mm. I I can't even imagine I I seriously can't even imagine sometimes what my ex must have felt because we went through 29 years of us Mm -hmm. not knowing well actually 31 together but 29 married and I every time I talk to an autistic partner and I I look at them and they're truly lost Mm -hmm. they're really trying to understand how they can be different or how they can be a good partner. But I think they're also, at times trying to figure out why are they treated the way they're treated? Or why have they been treated the way they've been treated? Or why haven't things worked out the way they wanted them to? And they're dealing with so much at once with late adult diagnosis. Yeah, any, any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I I 100% agree with everything you're saying. And it's, it's so, you know, it's layer upon layer of wounding, right? Mm -hmm. And, and one of the things that I hold very strongly in my mind that I feel pretty, that I feel is really crucial in working with neurodiverse couples, is that, um, is, is that, you know, any, any group that's in the minority is at risk of being oppressed and marginalized and othered and dehumanized and all those lovely things that we mm-hmm. humans to do. And in, in terms of neurodivergencies, that is very prevalent. So, you know, we still have a long, long way to go on other issues, you know, race and gender and, you know, and all kinds of things, you know, we're not there yet obviously. But I think that there is sort of a general acceptance of that's where we should be going toward mm-hmm. equality. But I don't think we're there yet with neurodiversity. I think, oh, that, no. <laughs> yeah, I think that we still look at neurodivergent people as, you know, broken or less than or wrong. And I think it's really important to help couples shift the paradigm when they come in from one partner's right, one partner's wrong, or one partner's normal and one partner's weird, and shifting that to hey, you're both people, you both have your preferences and your ways of doing things. And can, we, and can we make the environment between each other safe enough that that can emerge? And, you know, one of the, I didn't say this earlier, Mona, but one of the purposes of doing that U-turn that I was talking about, you know, in looking at our own systems and our own parts is that when we get more clarity on that, we can then advocate for ourselves more clearly and cleanly. I have this, I have my husband and I have this really funny, it's so trivial, but I think it's, it's representative of just the safety in communicating Mm -hmm. Um, where, you know, I grew up in a family where everybody always said, God bless you. Every time, you know, someone sneezed Mm -hmm. and, you know, obviously a sneeze doesn't mean you're going to die, but you know, it's just kind of like a nice little, I'm there with you. You know, it's just a nice little (laughs) touch in. Right. And my husband grew up in a family where they didn't do that at all. So you know, he and I get together. And of course, I'm wanting him to say it. And, you know, and he feels it's weird when I say it, or he never says it. And, you know, it's not a big deal, obviously. Right. (laughs) But it's, you know, but it's something that we talk about from time to time. And, you know, especially if I'm feeling, you know, feeling sorry for myself or feeling, you know, I'm in a bad place for whatever reason, you know, I might, I might get mad at him for not doing that, even though I know he doesn't like, you know, what's my, my expectations ridiculous. Right. But what happened And again, I know this is such a trivial issue, but I bring it up because I think it's representative for not not neurodiverse couples in particular, but any couples. But it does happen, I think, to show up with the neurodiverse couples that I work with, is that when I slowed down and was able to explain to my husband something like, you know, I know it's, it's a trivial thing. I know it's not necessary, but it just reminds me that I'm loved. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was able to say that from not a reactive place, like "What's wrong with you?" You know, mm-hmm. your family didn't say this. That's wrong, or whatever. That he was then able to soften, and and what he said to me was really compelling. He said, "You know, who am I to ask God to bless you?" Mm-hmm. And I thought, "Oh yeah, okay, I can see that." And so the end of the story was we settled on Gazuntite, <laughs> 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 but you know. I- I love yep. that. Go ahead. I'm it, no, I'm sorry. That, that's fine. It's, it's just laughable to me because obviously it's very trivial, but it's a conversation that we've not had well for, you know, I've been married for 31 years and, you know, it just took that little bit of self-regulation and openness with each other to be able to come up with a fine resolution for both of us. And I think that that happens on steroids with neurodivergent couples, you know, mm-hmm. because um, it, as you were talking about, a, a person, a person who's neurodivergent, especially autistic, not especially, but in particular autistic, gets so many messages from day one that they're broken, they're weird, they're wrong, you know, they're unlovable, you know, all these horrible things, and those become like bone bruises, you know, they get so mm. deep. And so, yes, it, I'm sure feeling really lonely and really maybe hopeless in a relationship with a neurotypical person who also is maybe putting out the same messages. But what what's really needed for those things to repair and those burdens to lift is safety. So it really speaks to both partners really trying to regulate their nervous systems in whatever way they do that. In IFS, we do that by unblending parts. If I'm blended, like I was talking earlier about my road rage part, if I can unblend my road rage part, then I might be able to say, you know, hey, that person did something dangerous. You know, I'm, I'm going to go report them or something Mm -hmm. like that rather than I'm going to kill them, you know. So when we get unblended, we self-regulate and then we can make better decisions and have better communication. So it's really essential in neurodiverse relationships to do that because, you know, again, in a neurotypical relationship, this happens too, but if I'm all worked up and criticizing my partner and hoping that they're going to hear my criticism and that's going to make them love me more. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Doesn't work.
1: (laughs) Right. It doesn't work. Um, And so the same is true in neurodiverse relationships, but I think adding in that element of that neurodiversity paradigm of one is not better than the other. One is not more right than the other. It can really help couples soften and create more of that safety.
0: I could not agree more. And I I will tell you, I am the first one to raise my hand and say, I did it wrong. You know, I am a social worker. I have a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in social work. I've been in the field for, you know, 35 years, went to all the classes, all that stuff. And I screwed up royally numerous times um, because I didn't know we were neurodiverse. I feel like I did not provide, oftentimes, did not provide a safe place when I was communicating with my ex. And if he ever listens to the podcasts, I apologize (laughs) Um, deeply. You know, I'm really sorry that I didn't because I grew up in a family where we screamed and then we made up and, you know, everybody went on their way. But I think that what I did, and I've said this in other podcasts, is I got extremely emotional. And that meant crying, that meant screaming, that meant overloading my ex with a lot of my feelings. And I think there are so many emotional differences between people in general, but between um, neurodiverse couples, the emotional differences can create meltdowns, can create shutdowns, can create autistic burnout, and create havoc in relationships and havoc for both partners. Because unintentionally, I did not create a safe place for communication with my ex. I would bet that lots of other partners are doing the same thing. So what does that look like? You know, through the IFS lens, you said unblending um, and regulating the nervous system. Can you give me like Knowing that I would scream at my husband, my ex-husband, or I would, you know, cry and, and get really emotional and overload him with a lot of different thoughts, if that helps you kind of, you know, add those to that dynamic um, and kind of work through it, can you help our listeners kind of understand? Because I'm sure. I know I'm not the only one who has gotten to that point. Oh, for
1: sure. And you know and I, I want to say too, it's really hard to make a safe space for someone else when we're wounded or when, when our needs are not getting met over and over and over. So you know it's it's really you know it's, it would be almost saintly to be able to do that to say you know, <laughs> I'm suffering, but I'm gonna rise above it and be safe.
0: Today, you know? <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. This
1: is why we hire a couples therapists right because they help keep the space safe. Um, but to answer your question, Mona, another great question. Um, I think that, um, and this is this, I think we're not taught some of these skills, but they're kind of basic human beings. We need validation, even if it's Mm. coming from ourselves. So one, you know, an example, sort of to speak to the example that you brought up, let's say, um, you know, that you're really, you know, you're crying and you're, you know, angry. Step one would be to notice that you're activated Step two would be to validate it, to say, you know, I'm not irrational. I am upset for good reason. These are my reasons. I, you know, I want whatever. You know, I I need my partner to know that I want him to pick something up at the store for me. When I say that, I don't wanna have to spell everything out and I feel like I'm doing so much work and I'm so exhausted and why can't he just do this? To say, yes, that is something that I wish were true and something that I need. And that self-validation, the recognition of the activation, and then the self-validation is actually regulating and mm. helps us to unblend from a part that might be really mad at our partner. Or um, let me get, let me give you another example. Um, so uh, in IFS and, and in IFO, IFIO, which is the couples variant of IFS, we often talk about speaking for our parts rather than speaking from our parts. Mm. So, you know, maybe you know, maybe I'm working all day and I come home and, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night and there's spaghetti sauce on the ceiling and the kids are, you know, still dressed and not bathed. And, you know, and I flip out at my partner and I say, what the heck is wrong with you? You know, or something Mm -hmm. mean that obviously I'm angry. It might even be justified. It might be fully justified. But if I say, you know, what the F is wrong with you, I'm probably not going to get a good response from my partner. (laughs) Um, But if I say, okay, I'm angry. It's justified that I'm angry. You know, I've been working all day, you know, he or she has been home all day that, you know, nothing's been done. The kids aren't ready for bed. The kitchen's a mess. So I do that self-validation that calms me down a little bit. And then I might be able to say for, you know, on behalf of my angry part, rather than from it, I might be able to say, you know, this makes me really angry. I'm exhausted and I come home and you've been home all day and you know, I feel like now I have to do all this work or, you know, I have to get the kids ready for bed. And, you know, and maybe I say something, you know, I'm disappointed or I feel, you know, like I'm the only one that does work or whatever I might say, but it's the delivery of the information from a place of regulation rather than from the part energy, in this case, an angry part, that's going to give my, me my best chance for the, my partner to be able to hear it. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's, and then that is kind of the safe space or safer, my partner might be able to say, you know what, I know, but you know, the, the dog had to go to the vet in an emergency and I lost all this time. You know, whereas if, you know, if I was just attacking my partner with my anger, they might just in a huff go off and then we never figure it out. So, you know, I think that, um, did I answer your question? Mara? Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, that is that it's so simple. Kim, and it's so difficult at the same time. Absolutely. (laughs) And I I think that's important for our listeners to know, because I know, I'll just give you an example. You know, my ex would tell me he'd be home at at seven o'clock, and he wouldn't get home until nine o'clock, he would check in, he would text me and say, I'm, you know, working on this, whatever it was a repair I need to do. I'm not, I'm running late. It's not happening. I had a screw up whatever. And, you know, After it happens numerous times, I've lost my patience. Mm -hmm. And so the part that I'm coming from is the angry part, the part that doesn't feel valued, the part that doesn't feel validated, the part that that doesn't feel that I have a partner, right? Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you that a lot of the listeners are going, huh, Mona? Yep, yep, yep. I check all those boxes. Right. So, how to self regulate. I right. think is so critical for probably both partners, but the neurotypical who's going to start screaming the second their husband partner comes in the door mm-hmm. is not going to get their needs met. Mm-hmm. And then the autistic or neurodivergent partner who starts screaming the second they come through the door because either the house is a mess or the kids are screaming and they need their alone and downtime and they're not going to get it because everything is a mess mm-hmm. and, and maybe their partner needs help. Um, you know, those are the, the times where I think things get out of control. And the more you have those situations, the more challenging any relationship can be. But in a neurodiverse relationship, I think the neurodivergent partner can, um, shut down. Mm-hmm. And then when you're trying to have conversations and you're trying to work through things, you might not be able to without the help of somebody like you, Kim, <laughs> <laughs> who can, um, unpeel, you know, the part or blunt, unblend the parts, mm-hmm. uh, so so maybe I love I love the the dysregulation turning that into regulating your nervous system. I love the unblending. In real life, what are some of the like tricks of the trade, the secrets, the things that people who are listening could implement like immediately?
1: Yeah, um, I I think the first the, the sort of conceptually easiest thing, although, as you said before, a lot of these things are simple to understand, but hard to do. Um, and so this, this is along those lines, but I think, you know, it's, it's more doable than, than some of the advanced stuff is to just take a moment. So mm. to start, our bodies are really good barometers of when we get triggered. You know, a lot of people have, you know, like I, mine tends to be in my stomach. If I, you know, if, if, if I encounter a situation that's going to make me upset, I I can feel a clutch in my stomach. So, so, so offline, you know, when it's not happening, starting to notice those things about oneself, but when we do notice that we're angry or we're going to explode, give ourselves three seconds, Mm. just pause and breathe for three seconds or two seconds. That's step one, because that allows us, even that is a little bit of a nervous system regulation, But, but building in that pause, again, I know it sounds easy. It's a little bit harder to do, but it's, it's just that it's just, you know, contracting with yourself to practice taking a breath or a couple of breaths when we feel that way. And that does a lot of things. It regulates our nervous system. It also helps us get more clarity about what's really going on. And so, you know, if in the case, in the situation that you were describing, Mona, um, you know, your, your husband says he's gonna be home at seven, but then he's home at nine. And you're like, okay, this, I feel not valued. If you are coming from a regulated place and maybe not even right then that night, but maybe another day, you have a really sincere conversation about that. And you say, when you tell me you're gonna be home at one time, and then you come at a different time, two hours later, I really feel like you're not prioritizing me or you're not valuing our time together. And, you know, then maybe the partner can say something like, well, I, you know, I want to, but I lose track of time or whatever, whatever. And then it can be a problem solving issue. You know, how do we build in timers or systems or, or track it so that it's not more than once a week that that happens or whatever. But um, anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting farther down the road, but the first thing I would suggest for people is practice and get in the habit of, taking a breath Mm -hmm. not when your partner's angry or activated but when you are angry or activated getting in the habit of taking a breath and slowing
0: yourself down i love that. i love i mean it's so again it's so simple and i think if i would have done that i would have saved myself a lot of anxiety and a lot of screaming sessions and a lot of fights i do do that now Mm -hmm. Um, so thank you for reminding our audience how important that that is and, and you mentioned getting clarity regarding like how important the issue is and whether or not you've actually sat down and had a discussion about it, because I think we react, you know, we get so dysregulated, we react and we may never have talked to our partners about what our needs are, especially, right. right? Especially when we're running around with one, two, three kids, a full both have full-time jobs and they're trying to maintain a household. Right.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, and we may. Yes, it's really hard to carve out the time. Um, But, you know, another thing that um, Tony Herbine Blank says, and she's the developer of IFIO, um, she says that slow is fast. And one of the ways that I think about that is that, you know, couples probably have tried to have that conversation many times but not from that regulated place, you know, more from their parts fighting with each other. And so it really doesn't land. It doesn't get in because when we're in a part, we're usually defending ourselves or in some way or another um, we're, we're a little bit blocked off. Mm-hmm. And, and so that nervous system regulation, it not only allows, if I do that for myself, it not only allows me to have clarity in what I'm articulating, but it allows me to also be a little bit more open to what my partner's saying. doesn't mean I have to agree with it, but I can at least hear it in a, in a, better way. And so, you know, a couple in, in the scenario that you described, they may have tried to have that conversation many times, but it might've been, you know, in an argumentative way or with some, you know, parts energy behind it might not have really sunk in for either one of them in a way that they could really effectively problem solve it.
0: I so agree. And, and that kind of takes me to the next area where I think a lot of the folks that, um, come to the support groups and I've talked to have challenges is with the differences in thinking and processing. Mm. We've talked about the emotional differences and the communication differences, but there are also a lot of thinking and processing differences where, you know, the neurodivergent might be, and you talked about this at the beginning, um, much more logical and rational in the way they think. And the a neurotypical might be a little bit more emotional and use feelings and all of that. So, how would those thinking and processing differences be worked through using the IFIO model or IF- IFS, whichever?
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of answers to that as I'm mulling over your question, Mona. And I, you know, the and sort of the two for me, um, the two core issues that I see in the thinking and processing differences. One of them is exactly what you what you named that I think that autistic people tend to really value cognitive information and intellectual understanding, and that's great. That's really powerful. It is neurodiverse people might use more of a mix. Somebody, you know, someone might also someone neurotypical might also use, you know, favor cognitive in- input and information. But they might also use emotional or intuitive information and kind of or a mix, some kind of mix of those. And so I think kind of coming back to that neurodiversity paradigm of respecting each person's way of doing it, that one is not superior to the Mm -hmm. other. They're just different. And using parts work to help uncover assumptions or biases that either partner might have around, you know, one way being superior to the other. Um and, and then also in that way, um, again, and, you know, it's not about agreement or about thinking the same way, but honoring the other's way um, and respecting it. Um, so that's a big, that's a big piece of work. <clears throat> the other thing that I that I see in thinking and processing differences um is um I think about a metaphor of a camera. Mm-hmm. And you might have heard me talk about this before, Mona, but um, you know, with with a camera with an autofocus lens. If I'm focused on the wrong thing, um, I might be able to tell and I might be able to kind of fairly easily change what I'm zoomed in on or what I'm focused on. That's the autofocus feature, right? Like it detects that something's not in focus and then it adjusts in or out, left or right, whatever, to get it a little bit more clear. And the effort in changing in an autofocus modality is not that much. It's, it's not that hard to change focus. Mm-hmm. But in contrast with that, if you have a camera with manual lenses, you mm-hmm. know, those lenses might be phenomenal, very high end, pristine. Someone might have an amazing, uh, uh, what's the word where you can like zoom in on something or like telephoto lens. Right, right, right. <laughs> but if they're manual lenses, there's a lot of overhead in changing them. Mm-hmm. So it's not that the person is missing lenses or that they can't change focus, but it's very effortful. And this is a big difference I see between uh, couples where there's neurodiversity in the marriage is that one has an autofocus lens and the other one has manual lenses. And again, you know, it's, it's working, it's articulating that, or, you know, maybe not in that way, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's really easy for me to change, you know, the focus of a conversation. It's really easy for me to follow a conversation when the topic changes, for a, you know, a neurodivergent person, not so much, maybe right. And if we look at it as, you know, a non in a non pathologizing metaphorical way, then we can have more compassion for the differences. And we can begin to even model how the other person might be if we have an understanding like that. So, you know, there's less um, disappointment there's less frustration, there's less than parts that get activated, you know, that get angry or make meaning of, Mm -hmm. you know, of a difference in those ways when, when we have kind of a working model of it, that's less pathologizing.
0: I love that. And, you know, I've heard some folks talk about, you know, the neurodivergent love languages. So when somebody who you're in a relationship with, whether it's a love relationship or a friendship or a sibling or whatever, who's neurodivergent starts info dumping, I'm, I'm putting um, the, the quotes around my info dumping, you know, they start sharing in depth about their special interest that's part of their love language. They feel, they feel safe. They feel comfortable with you that they want to share something that is so important. And they trust you with this information and their time and, you know, the level of research that they've done and all of that. Most people probably would be like, what is this person doing? I, you know, I didn't ask them to share all this information with, with me, but, You know, knowing that the way in which a neurodivergent might share and might their love languages might be very different than yours, and the way they think and process might be very different, instead of getting annoyed. You might say, Oh, thank you so much for yeah. sharing that. You know, when I have more time, can we talk about this more in depth? Are there some pictures you can share with me? You know, is there a place you can take me? You know, if they're interested in animals or whatever. And I think we get so caught up in how the differences can be problems, or can be annoyances, especially when we're so stressed in our everyday life. But actually, they can be opportunities for building, you know, bridges and, um, you know, learning about something that we may have no knowledge about. And that might increase the love and the maybe even compatibility, you know, you might not have ever been interested in horses and your partner is is very very interested in horses and if you just take time to see things through a not a a negative lens but a positive lens and that this is their way of showing love it could turn that part of your relationship around I
1: love that
0: yeah it's hard you know it's hard I think because so many people are struggling with so many things on their plate it's really hard sometimes to take a step back and see your partner's love language and how you can love them through their love language
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that's a that's a great point mona i really love that and it um you know and it reminds me too of um in ifs you know, we really understand that all of our parts have good intentions, the outcome mm. might not be so good, like the road rage example I gave, right? You know, it's not behaving in a way that's great, but the intention behind it is good. And I think that's what you're speaking to, you know, mm-hmm. looking at our partners, in what they're doing, even if it strikes us as, you know, odd, or we don't understand it, looking for that positive intention can make a huge difference.
0: I so agree. I so agree. And I think um, I would really love to talk about some of the strengths that you've seen? I mean, cause this kind of goes right into that. What are some of the strengths that you've seen in the neurodiverse couples that have come to your practice?
1: Yeah. So, um, quite a few really. Um, I think that often, um, a neurodivergent partner often brings, uh, a stability and, uh, a sense of safety in terms of, um, abandonment or that kind of thing that, you know, you don't always feel with neurodivergent partners. Um, there's sort of, you know, a commitment as a commitment and, um, that can be a real strength. Not everybody, of course, you know, but that can Mm -hmm. be a real strength. Um, I, I often see fewer power struggles in, um, neurodiverse couples, um, or, or maybe, maybe different kinds of power struggles, but, um, you know, if one partner is, you know, really good at, at, let's say cleaning or, you know, really cares a lot about cleaning and they, you know, and oftentimes we might think of this as a source of annoyance, but if they like doing it and they're, you know, good at it, the other partner might not, you know, be as likely to challenge them on it. So, you know, with the special interests and with the divergent interests, there can be less fighting over things that other couples, you know, maybe, you know, each try to kind of have, have their share of, if that makes sense. Totally. Um, yeah. And I, you know, and I know that in um, one of the things that really can drive um, neuro neuro di- neurotypical couples crazy, is that often one partner or both partners will, and I think we're, we're acculturated this way is to problem solve, mm-hmm. you know, so let's say I come home from work, and I'm like, Oh, my job is so hard. I hate my boss, blah, blah, blah. And then if my partner's like, well, just quit. You know, I'm like, well, I can't just quit, you know, and so that that problem solving or that advice giving can feel really invalidating and um, and not not particularly helpful, usually, too. Um, and that's something that neurotypical couples struggle with a lot. But I think that that is much less prevalent in neurodiverse couples. Um, so that's kind of a nice thing to avoid, you know, um, an, an autistic partner might be a really good listener, you know, Mm -hmm. and they might, they might not be giving off the same, you know, facial expressions or body language that you might rely on as feedback from a neurotypical partner, but, you know, knowing and trusting that the caring and the attention is there can feel really good. And even in some ways more validating than, you know, someone saying, well, just quit, (laughs) you
0: know? Yeah. And and I I want to stress that because I think that was one of the things that was a humongous strength in my marriage. Um, For the longest time, my ex was a phenomenal listener when he wasn't overwhelmed. Mm
1: -hmm. And when
0: it didn't involve something emotional between the two of us. Mm -hmm. So when I would talk to him about work, or I would talk to him about something that was going on with a friend, he would give me Some really great thoughts that I would never, ever, that would never have come to my mind, ever. And it's actually something that I miss because of his logical and rational brain. He did not let his emotions get the best of him, where I was tied to my emotions and he could think things through in a way that I couldn't. So I, I so agree with that. And I, the stability piece, um, I, I think that a lot of uh, neurodivergent partners, like you said, once they're married, they're married for life and they're going to stick it out. I'm not sure that's always good. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I think my ex would have stayed forever, even with all the toxicity. But um, yeah, and, and the safety piece, I think if you can get a handle on, you know, meltdowns and shutdowns and understanding where they come from, and maybe understanding more of the triggers, I think that is um, something that could be a real strength in the relationship and loyalty. Mm
1: -hmm. You know,
0: I, I hear from a lot of women that they never ever think about their husband cheating on them. Ever, or their partner cheating on them. They know they love them with all their heart, even if they don't necessarily say it. Um, but they know that that they don't have to worry about infidelity. So I, I agree with you on all those strengths. Mm-hmm. So so we are almost at the end of our um Our episode today and I really we've talked about so many important things and I am so glad that you've woven in the IFS piece here are there other things that you have dealt with in your practice that you feel would be helpful for our listeners to hear about words of wisdom strategies you've used on any particular difference or issue that some of the neurodiverse couples you've worked with have had
1: Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I, that I really try to help my couples do is to, um, err, err on the side of communication. Um, you know, I think that, you know, humans, but, uh, you know, and maybe for, you know, you mentioned earlier that, um, an autistic partner might, might shut down Mm -hmm. and That might be for, you know, sensory overload reasons, but sometimes it's because of parts, because of parts that have been shamed when they try to say something and get it wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really try to work with couples to, you know, when they've got something going on, you know, something doesn't feel right or something, there seems to be something unnamed or, you know, that it's okay to ask, it's okay to talk about those things, you know, or, um, another example of erring on the side of communication, you know, um, I was working with a couple where um, I'm trying to remember the scenario, but they were at a party or something and it was a heterosexual couple. And the uh, wife was neurotypical and the husband was on the spectrum and the wife said, you know, Oh, I really need to go. I'm not feeling well or something. And the husband walked upstairs and what he was doing was going to get their coats, mm. <laughs> so, like, honoring her request. But all she saw was him walking away in the opposite direction from where she wanted to go. Right. So, you know, so that's another Another thing that I encourage couples to do is kind of just really, you know, even though you think, you know, to articulate their assumptions or their expectations, you know, so, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to make a change, if I'm going to do something different than what we've been doing, I, I narrate it, I say it out loud, I check in with the expectations around it. So communication is huge, but doing it as much as possible, like from that regulated
0: place. I love that. Air on the side of communication. Again, I've never heard it phrased that way, but I can't tell you how many times that did not happen in my marriage. And in the scenario you just mentioned, my ex would walk away after I had said something and didn't acknowledge that he was going to follow through and do what I had maybe asked him to do. He just left the conversation. Yeah. And I would get mad, and he wouldn't understand why I was getting mad. Because he was going to do what I asked him to do, but he didn't acknowledge it. So autistic partners, take heed, err on the side of communication. Just don't don't assume that your partner knows that you're going to follow through. Let them know. Tell them. Be explicit. I think that's great. That's fantastic. Anything else that you would like to share with our listeners?
1: Just to piggyback on that one a little bit, I I don't mean to imply that people have to do what their partners ask of them. You know, if, if one partner makes a request of the other, Uh, you know, let's, let's leave the party. And, you know, the other one doesn't have to, you know, okay, let me go get the coats. I mean, it's okay for them to say, gee, I'd really rather stay a little longer, you know, Mm -hmm. and then they can have a conversation about it. So it's not that our partners are always going to meet our needs or are always going to do what we ask. But again, erring on the side of communication can help people negotiate in a, you know, in a more balanced and fair way with each other.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I I used to at times take a separate car than my ex when we would go to events because I might want to leave earlier. He was a night owl. I wasn't. And I didn't want him to have to come home with me if he didn't want to. Nice. And then when we were going to events that were more focused on my interests, he might take his own car so that he could leave early because you know he was bored or he was ready to leave and go home. Whatever. And now that you know we have Uber and Lyft, you don't even have to take two cars. You <laughs> can call Uber or Lyft. I agree with you. And, and I want to say that I think for some autistic partners, that's part of masking. Yeah. And I know we, we didn't really talk about that, but I think to save the relationship sometimes and to not create conflict, I think partners will mask
1: mm-hmm. and they
0: will try to do whatever is asked of them. At the expense of themselves, and yes. that can lead to autistic burnout, and that can lead to meltdowns and shutdowns, and that isn't helpful or beneficial for either partner. Right, absolutely. So, yeah, you, you want to say something else about yeah, that? Yeah,
1: yeah. Sorry, um, I just wanted to say, you know, masking is the perfect example of a part. You know, they it's, mm. it's an autistic person having a protective part that helps them appear more neurotypical, so they can fit in. And it's it's something that they're you know probably choosing to do, but it's still it's a part that they're they're you know like a coat they're putting on, and it mm-hmm. is tiring. It you know anytime we're being led more by parts energy, it, there's there's a cost to our
0: stamina. Yeah, and our well being, right. our physical, our mental, our emotional, and our spiritual health, absolutely. So I think that is a great place for us to end. I think there's probably hours more of conversation that we could have. (laughs) And I want our listeners to be able to reach out to you. I know you're only licensed in certain states, but do you also do coaching or just counseling?
1: I do coaching. Um, You know, I, I, I prefer to do counseling, but I do do coaching as well.
0: OK, so if our listeners are interested in reaching out to you, what is the best place for them to contact you?
1: Uh, probably my website is the easiest. I do have a form on there that people can fill out if they want to contact me. And my website is simply my name. So it's bowling, which is K-I-M, and then bowling is spelled B-O-L-L-I-N-G dot
0: com. Awesome. Kim, I can't. Thank you enough. This was fascinating for me. I wish that I had known about this 25 years ago. I think it would have saved my ex and I a whole lot of challenges and and anger and strife. And I think this is going to be helpful to so many of our listeners. And I can't thank you enough. Are there any other maybe books or sites that you would recommend for anybody that wants to delve more into IFS?
1: Oh um, yeah, for IFS in particular, um, the uh, the website is um, ifs institutecom okay. I believe, and there's tons of resources, and you know there's there's a store there. There's some in, there's some introductory books, um, and then um, let's see, and um, yeah, those those are specific to IFS. You know, I okay. I don't honestly know too many people that are merging ifs with neurodiversity right now um i think it's sort of a you know growing edge in a way but Mm -hmm. you know but for you know for the ifs knowledge that's the place to go
0: fantastic well i'm thrilled that you are combining the two because i think it's going to help a lot of neurodiverse couples and i hope some of our listeners will reach out to you and i can't thank you enough for being with me today on the podcast and uh, i just hope you have a wonderful week
1: Thank you so much, Mona. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate
0: it. Thank you. You take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.